Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night and it is time to talk about science. Um, so yes, as always, you can find me throughout the week on the Facebook page and you can listen to this and uh, previous episodes of the show as a podcast on your favorite pod catcher, uh, including iTunes and Stitcher. So let us get into it for tonight. Uh, I wanted to start with a brief update on everyone's favorite, just bizarre star, uh, KIC 8462852, uh, also known as Tabby's star. And, uh, that's named after the astronomer, Tabitha Boyajian, um, of Louisiana State University, who first discovered it. And so this is the one that people uh, at some point thought might have uh, an alien megastructure around it, a Dyson sphere, all sorts of crazy things. Um, and obviously, probably none of those things. And so apparently, beginning on the 16th, the dimming dropped down 4% before returning to normal. And this made it the largest dip recorded since the initial um, discovery by the Kepler telescope. And uh, so then on March 26th, the dimming began again. Today we have some very big news. Data taken at TFN last night shows the flux is down 5%, Boyajian wrote. This drop has now been confirmed by AAVSO observer John Hall. Looks like we beat the record set just last week on the deepest dip observed since Kepler. Now, during that initial Kepler observation series, the star actually dimmed as much as 22%. So 5% may not seem like a lot, but... It is the lowest it's gone since those initial uh, measurements. And so by looking at archival data, the team has also been able to note that the star has in the past had periods of significant brightening. So again, it's still a very weird star. We don't really know what the heck is going on there. Um, and so the current prevailing theory is actually that the light is being blocked by what must be an irregular dust cloud. Um, but even that is still up in the air because it is a really weird variability. Now, just two other stars, a white dwarf, WD 1145 plus 017, uh, dips up to 30%, but this is thought to be caused by dust specifically. And there's also a variable star, RZ Piscium, which has dimmed up to 10% in a similarly erratic way, but this is thought to be caused by dust. So again, they think that Tabby star is almost certainly caused by dust as well. It's just weirdly distributed dust. <laughs> uh, and so if you want to keep up with the weirdness that is Tabby star, you can either follow Boyajian's blog or you can follow the hashtag Tabby's Star, T-A-B-B-Y-S-S-T-A-R, on Twitter. 
And so, yeah, it's very weird. And we still don't know what it is, but it's almost certainly still not aliens. Sadly, because aliens would be neat. Unfortunately, I just don't think there's any good evidence for them yet. So next, I wanted to take a moment to discuss the new study uh, that's come out that probably has a lot of people worried, and it shows that the humble rubber ducky that many people have known and loved and continue to cherish is actually a horrifying incubator of all sorts of bacteria and biofilms. Now, while this is technically true, it's also rather unsurprising, honestly. Bacteria love warm, wet spaces, and since they're often used in baths, the water they're exposed to is rarely clean. <laughs> so after simulating 11 weeks of household use, the uh, researchers at the Swiss Federal Institute of Aquatic Science and Technology found that the 19 bath toys that they had uh, collected had a lot of grossness inside of them. What they did was that they took them and they bisected them and opened them up. 60% had fungal species, while 80% of all the toys contained some amount of potentially pathogenic bacteria. But again, before you panic and throw out all of your bath tour toys, note the conclusion reached by the team itself, in fact. This could strengthen the immune system, which would be positive, explains microbiologist Frederick Hammonds. But it can also result in eye, ear, or even gastrointestinal infections. The team says that more research would be needed, would need to be conducted to see if this really is causing harm to children, especially, or if it's just another way in which children are exposed to bacteria and fungi every day all over the place. Um, and so they say that if you are worried, the easiest way to clean them up is to boil them and then let them dry completely in between baths. And that will definitely lessen the buildup of bacteria. But again, this does not suggest that you should banish all squeezy toys from your life. Maybe just don't squirt the water from them onto yourself or especially your kids. That seems to be the easiest thing to do is just to try and avoid that sort of thing. But you definitely don't have to get rid of them. Just be a little more uh, parsimonious with the amount of usage that they get, perhaps. And in other fear-mongering uh, clickbait headline news, uh, a California judge has apparently decided that coffee companies must put a warning label on their coffee because of the fact that it contains a known carcinogen. Now, once again, this is fear-mongering. Um, it's nice, actually, I should say, the, the rubber ducky one was not necessarily fear-mongering. They were very clear that, you know, this isn't necessarily going to be a terrible thing. You know, you shouldn't throw out all your bath toys and never use them again. Um, you know, just the way that it was reported has been slightly clickbaity in some of the forums in which it was being reported. Hi. I'm but um that is not the same as the researchers being uh out there saying throw everything away. And so this one though is definitely it's definitely fear-mongering. And so coffee does actually contain um 
acrylamide, which is a known carcinogen. However, there is no evidence that the amount present in coffee is dangerous for human consumption. And so the coffee companies, because of a non-science-based law in California, were forced to defend the premise that acrylamide in coffee wouldn't cause one or more cases of cancer for every 100,000 people. Now, of course, that's extremely hard to defend. It doesn't make sense to try and defend something like that because that's not how the science of carcinogen exposure works. And in fact, the evidence pointing to acrylamide's potential to cause cancer in humans at all is scant at best. So this is another, uh, the, the famous example I always think of is sweet and low. So the saccharin in sweet and low, you know, it used to say that it had to, it used to have to say that, you know, it could cause cancer. Well, that was because they were taking giant syringefuls of it and injecting that into rats the size of my hand. And so if you if you ingest a huge amount of something like that, sure, it'll cause cancer. If you ingest a huge amount of anything, it's going to be problematic. And so this is just one of those things where they've looked at the science and have completely not understood it at all and are using it to uh, fearmonger, basically. And so, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, this is my opinion, but this is either a simple money grab against large companies that they feel can afford to pay or a deeply misguided effort to promote health because the science is all on the side of the coffee companies. And in fact, the American Cancer Society notes, most of the studies done so far have not found an increased risk of cancer in humans. For some types of cancer, such as kidney, endometrial, and ovarian cancer, the results have been mixed. But there are currently no cancer types for which there is clearly an increased risk related to acrylamide intake. And of course, coffee is not the only thing that acrylamide is found in. It's also found in other fried foods such as French fries and chips. And in fact, the same company that is suing the coffee uh, makers is also apparently suing chip makers now. And so, yeah, not impressed. And so coffee has actually been thoroughly studied. And in fact, some of the latest evidence suggests it might even give you, help give you a decreased risk of developing many kinds of cancer. So don't put away your coffee mug just yet. As I said, California's ability for, for citizens to create legislation has led to a series of deeply disturbing and unscientific laws that are now being exploited by law firms seeking big payouts, not seeking to actually make people's lives healthier or happier. And yeah, so it remains to be seen what's going to happen in California because some of these laws are just outrageous and they have absolutely no basis in science or rationality, these food-oriented legislations that they've put through because of fear mongers like the food babe um, are just really disturbing. And I'm just worried what's going to happen because 
California is a big state. And if they have to do things there, then they might have to do them everywhere. And that costs consumer money, consumers money. And guess what? You're paying more for no good reason. You're paying to line the pockets of the lawyers and the companies that are suing these companies that haven't done anything wrong. I mean, they're corporations, so I'm sure they've done something wrong. Um, don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm still very anti-capitalism, um, in general, but I think that these sorts of anti-scientific lawsuits are just unconscionable. Um, there's absolutely no reason to put a warning label on coffee that it might be carcinogenic. It's just, it's ridiculous. Um, and of course, one of the other things is that the companies are probably going to have to pay out for not having put the label on earlier, which again, this is just a money grab as far as I can tell. And it's just very upsetting. Okay, let us move on though, because I could just rant about that all night. And so, yeah, <laughs> it is technically, even though it doesn't necessarily look like it yet, spring. And with spring comes a certain holiday that involves rabbits. So let's discuss this, this humble but actually pretty neat little animal. First off, let me note that rabbits are a pet that requires just as much, if not more care than a cat or a dog. They can live long, happy lives if properly cared for. Unfortunately, they're often bought on a whim as small bunnies, and when reality sets in, they are abandoned in large numbers. Some people suspect that they might actually be the number one abandoned pet, um, but unfortunately, the numbers just aren't kept in that way. Uh, cats and dogs, the number of cats and dogs that come into shelters are kept separately, but rabbits are generally put in in the other category. And so you can't actually say with certainty, but it is almost certain that they are definitely amongst the top animals that are abandoned. And so surrenders spike just after this time of year, but they are a year-round reality for pet shelters. And if they're not actually surrendered to pet shelters, they're often just simply put outside to fend for themselves. They're rabbits, they'll eat grass and figure it out, but they don't have any wild instinct, instincts or skills, and they will rarely last long outside unless rescued by someone else. And they are prey animals. So unlike dogs and cats, they prefer to be on their own feet on the ground they are not usually thrilled with the idea of being held or cradled for long periods of time, and therefore they can seem less loving than other pets, uh, which often puts off the children for which these bunnies are often bought. Now, again, that's not to say that they can't make a good pet. You just have to know what you're getting into. You have to know that they can live 10 to 12 years or even more, uh, that they can be litter trained and need to be litter trained, uh, that they need to be spayed or neutered, and that can cost as much as it would for a cat or a dog. They all they need to be able to roam and exercise so they can't just be left in a little cage. And they can have unique personalities. They can be a great pet, but they are very, very labor intensive 
in a way that a lot of people don't think that they would be. And so they should never be purchased or adopted as a gift for an unsuspecting child or family. It takes a patient person to become friends with these silent and subtle animals, says Margot DeMello, president of the House Rabbit Society. And, you know, rabbits are actually really interesting from an evolutionary standpoint as well. They have really interesting uh, adaptations for being a prey animal. So they have eyes that are high on the sides of their heads, which means they have almost 360 degrees of vision. They only have a small blind spot directly in front of them. They also sleep with those eyes open. Uh, they have a nictitating membrane or third cleared eyelid, um, which keeps their eyes moist as they're sleeping and uh, allows them to keep their eyes open. They are also obligate nasal breathers, which means they can only breathe through their nose. And this allows them to be alert for the smell of predators, even when they're eating. And of course, their large movable ears give them excellent hearing. Now, here's the really interesting thing about them. They also have hinged skulls. So they have a cranial hinge, and this allows them to make quick escapes using their powerful, large hind legs. They can run at speeds that would otherwise cause their brain to bounce against the cranium. But because they have this hinged cranium, they are able to do that. And so, again, while rabbits are very neat, unless you're in for the long haul and want a real commitment, leave them either in the pet shop or at the county fair. You can see some really beautiful ones at the county fair, usually, uh, some really fun angoras. Uh, but also, let me just tell you that I had a friend in high school whose mom kept angora rabbits, and they were pretty, but they were very mean. <laughs> and they had claws, and they knew how to use them. So again, you have to be careful, and you have to know what you're getting into. All right. So. Let's move on now to what I'm going to consider to be a bit of good news coming from the government. I know, I know, and I'm probably going to be proven wrong, but I just, I need to have some sort of hope. And uh, with everything else that's going on with this ridiculousness with trying to privatize the VA and all sorts of other things, I have to believe that this is going to be a good thing. And so it looks like, at least at the moment and based on what he said the other day, that Robert Redfield Jr., the new director of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC, is actually hoping to use his platform to promote good science and medicine. His first address to the agency included several mentions of the importance of science and data. He's a long-term He's a longtime AIDS researcher who hopes that his background will help lead the U.S. in combating that disease. He said he was honored to be chosen to lead the best, quote, science-based, data-driven agency in the world. I've dreamed of doing this for a long time. And so before coming to the CDC, he was a medical professor at the University of Maryland. He headed clinical care and research at the university's medical school, 
the University Medical School's Institute of Human Virology. He also oversaw programs caring for 6,000 patients in the Baltimore, D.C. region, as well as more than 1.3 million patients in Africa and the Caribbean as part of PEPFAR, or the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. Now, some have expressed worries about his early suggestion that HIV testing be mandatory and his ties to some conservative AIDS organizations that support abstinence-based prevention. However, in his speech, he called for comprehensive prevention strategies. I've never been an abstinence-only person, he said. Just ask my wife, he added, prompting laughter from the audience. I believe in every measure we have scientific evidence for, including condoms. So, again cautiously optimistic. He also spoke of the importance of vaccines, telling a story of how he had convinced military leadership as an army doctor back in the early 80s to vaccinate all those serving in the armed forces for hepatitis B. This was after he had treated a young soldier who had then infected his wife and newborn child. We have got to get the American public to understand that vaccination is important and needs to be fully utilized, he said in the speech. He also remarked that while referencing, he also uh, referenced at that point the 130 children who had died of the flu this season. And so I'm really heartened by that. He also addressed the opioid crisis, agreeing that it is a medical and not a moral problem, and that the CDC should take a role in heading it off. And in fact, he apparently has personal experience with the crisis and noted that if any of you have tried to access care for addiction in this nation, I guarantee you it's complicated. It needs to not be complicated, which I wholeheartedly agree with. Now, again, critics have also had concerns about his lack of experience in governmental public health, but Redfield reassured them that he was ready to take on the responsibility and noted that he had experience with relief efforts after the 2010 Haiti earthquake and experiences in Africa with the PEPFAR program. I respect the mission we have, which is to be prepared for what we don't expect. And so I'm again, cautiously optimistic about this pick, despite the controversies in his past. And in fact, he's, even if he's not as much as excellent as I'm hoping he's going to be based on this speech, he's certainly better than Brenda Fitzgerald, who preceded him in this spot, who had to resign from the post after only six months, because she was unable to, quote, divest from complex financial interests in a reasonable amount of time, according to a statement from the CDC. She also bought shares in a tobacco company shortly after her appointment as head of the CDC. So yes, let's give Redfield a bit of time to see if he really can put science and reason back on the table in at least one part of our government. Okay, so let us move on to another uh, health-related story, and then we'll take a break. 
So speaking of infectious diseases, uh, this is some not so great news. The UK's Public Health England has revealed that a man has been diagnosed with an extremely drug-resistant form of gonorrhea. It's usually cured with antibiotics, but this form of the bacteria has proven extremely resistant to conventional treatments. And unfortunately, this will almost certainly not be the last case of this infection we'll be seeing anytime soon. The World Health Organization has been sounding the alarm about antibiotic resistance, and especially resistance to older, cheaper antibiotics. These cases may just be the tip of the iceberg, since systems to diagnose and report untreatable infections are lacking in lower-income countries where gonorrhea is actually more common, said Theodora Wee, a human reproduction expert with WHO, in a 2017 press release. Now, the man has a partner in the UK, but it's suspected he might have been infected during a recent trip to Southeast Asia, which is one of those places that has less monitoring. He's currently being treated with a strong antibiotic called ertapenem, which the doctors hope will knock out the infection, but they're not sure. And this is a much harsher treatment than the conventional antibiotic cocktail used to treat the STI generally. And the problem, too, is that gonorrhea is one of the most common STIs out there, with 78 million new cases every year. So remember, if you're sexually active, to use protection, get tested regularly, and be open and honest with your partners. So yeah, uh, globally, drug resistance in general, uh, drug-resistant infections kill at least 700 thousand people a year. Antibiotic resistance is a real and terrifying problem that we can actually help address, at least in a small part. And so the easiest things to do personally are to not ask for antibiotics unless they're actually needed for a bacterial infection, which means that if you have a cold or the flu, do not ask for antibiotics. They will not help you. Those are viruses. Antibiotics do not work on viruses. And if you are prescribed antibiotics, you have to finish them exactly as prescribed on the bottle. And so those two things are great ways to do at least your part for preventing antibiotic resistance. Okay, let's take a break and then we will come back to the world of medicine for another uh, weird and interesting tale. All right, so hang on for just a moment while we do some PSAs and some show promos. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. 
Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So, when you get home at night and switch on the lights, do you feel good about the source of your electricity? Did you know that you can choose to power your home with 100% local, clean electricity? You have the power to say no to the standard mix of polluters like natural gas, coal, and oil. Make the switch to clean electricity produced right here in New England. It's easy. Sign up for New England Wind or New England Green Start without any contracts or commitments. Just go to www.massenergy.org forward slash CET. You don't let your kids play in the toilet. That's what it's like when pet owners don't pick up pet waste. Irrigation and stormwater can carry this pollutant to storm drains and retention areas where our children play. Do the right thing. For yourself and your community, pick up after your pet. Bag it and properly dispose of it in the trash. Remember, only rain in the storm drain. Brought to you by Stormwater Outreach for regional municipalities. Visit storm at www.azstorm.org. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the, it's the end of the world as we know it. It's the, it's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. Hey, it's Dio from the Enviro Show, which is the Valley's only local radio show devoted solely to environmental issues right here on WXOJLP Valley Free Radio. That's right. And I'm Glenn reminding you that we're at 103.3 FM and streaming live at valleyfreeradio.org every Tuesday from 6 to 7 p.m. And not so live on Thursdays at 2. And since it's the end of the world as we know it, why not spend your last hour with us? Exactly. We will help you cope with the end of the world without resorting to drugs or Facebook, even though we are on Facebook. And online at enviroshow.wordpress.org. Remember, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. and Thursdays at 2 p.m. Got it? Yes. Yo, this is Lady J, and you're listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, 103.3 FM, Northampton, Massachusetts. Okay, we are back. So this is something that I had never heard about before. And so, yeah, it, I think it'll be interesting to learn about. Maybe you have heard about this. It all started, uh, this at least particular case, when two women in France started to lose their hair. Now, these women didn't know each other. They had really no connection whatsoever. It turns out, however, that both had developed toxic squash syndrome or cucurbit poisoning. And so the culprit was bitter squash. So in the first case, the woman and her family developed food poisoning symptoms hours after eating a bitter tasting pumpkin soup. About a week later, the woman lost a large part of her hair. However, no one else in the family was affected. In the second case, the woman ate a bitter-tasting squash and developed severe vomiting, despite the fact that others who ate that same squash did not have any adverse events. 
Now, around three weeks later, she lost most of her hair, not only from her head, but also from her underarms and pubic area. Now, members of the cucurbitaceous family, which includes pumpkins, squash, melons, and cucumbers, can produce curcubitacins, a group of toxic chemicals that lead to the bitter taste and can have toxic effects on human cells, according to a live science report. Now, these compounds are generally bred out of commercially available produce, uh, not only because they're toxic, but also because people don't tend to like the bitter flavor. And so what can happen, though, is that if there is an accidental cross-pollination or if a plant is growing in the wild, some varieties can develop high enough levels to cause illness. Now, unfortunately, one of the big problems is that there is no difference in visual, uh, there's no visual difference between a bitter squash and a normal tasty squash. So it's only once you've cooked it and then taste it that you know that you have a bitter squash. And so while rare, there have been other cases of cucurbit poisoning. And so several of them have been described in medical literature. Now, it's generally squash, zucchini, or other gourds that have caused the disease. However, this is the first time that hair loss has been documented as a probable result of cucurbit poisoning. And so case report author Dr. Philippe Assoulet a dermatologist at St. Louis Hospital in Paris, suspects that the toxin is working similarly to some chemotherapy drugs, which obviously can cause hair loss. Now, however, because these are the first two cases to feature this symptom, it cannot be clearly established that this was indeed the cause, even though it seems pretty clear because there's only these two cases, they'd have to do more research. Now, again, I'd never heard of this before, but apparently it's more common than you might think. In 2012, emergency room physicians at Oregon Health and Science University had two patients poisoned by squash from a home garden. And after reviewing records for Oregon and Washington state poison centers, they actually found 17 other cases over a 12-year period. Even more shocking, a review published in the January Journal of Clinical Toxicology noted that a French poison control center reported over 350 cases tied to bitter squash between 2012 and 2016. And even worse, 56% of the squash in these cases had actually been purchased at a grocery store. So I guess the moral of that story is if you go to France, don't eat squash. <laughs> um, and also, if you find that your squash dish or the squash that you're eating uh, tastes bitter, stop eating it immediately and uh, definitely see a doctor if you end up with symptoms of food poisoning. Uh, and again, as for the case study women's hair, uh, that is the weirdest thing that uh, has happened with this weird uh, toxic issue. The pumpkin soup eater's hair has regrown less than an inch in the two months since her poisoning, while the second woman has regrown hair a bit over two inches in the last six months. So hopefully they will continue to recover 
and we'll be able to get their hair back. But again, beware of bitter squash, apparently. All right. So, uh, I do want to continue in the realm of medicine for another few minutes. And so our next story is about the promising new cancer vaccine that has been shown in clinical trials to cure up to 97% of tumors in mice. Now, that sounds amazing, but if you've heard me talk about mice model studies, or if you've done research on the subject yourself, you'll probably know that while there are that while they are the universally recognized first line of experimentation for many medical interventions something that works in a mouse or a rat may not have the same effects in the human body but since it's highly unethical to test out unproven drugs and medical interventions on humans and we haven't developed clones yet in order to argue over the ethics of testing on them That'll be a whole thing, um, which to which I don't have a good answer. So, uh, <laughs> don't, don't look to me. Um, because yeah, it's a really interesting thought is if we can develop clones of humans, would it be ethical to test medicines and disease interventions on clones? Because they're not technically people. Yeah, that's a whole science fiction novel experimentation, uh, thought experiment, I should say, uh, you know, philosophy class <laughs> that I don't want to uh, tackle <laughs> at all. So because we don't have that sort of uh, availability, we have to make do with mouse models. Mice are easy to breed. They're they're easy to contain. Uh, they're easy to uh, genetically modify so that you can have different strains of mice and rats. So there are all sorts of different strains that are genetically engineered for different things to help people figure out what's going on. And so, yeah, and it's a good place to start. Unfortunately, again, it doesn't always pan out. But getting back to this specific cancer vaccine, quote unquote, first off again, uh, or first off, let's talk about that term, cancer vaccine. It's not a true vaccine. However, according to the American Society of Clinical Oncology, what they consider to be a cancer vaccine can refer to a treatment that's used to prevent cancer from coming back and that destroys cancer cells that are still in the body. So that's what this is doing. Now, researchers at Stanford University are at the stage where they are going to be able to test the therapy on 35 people with lymphoma at the end of the year. And that's according to the San Francisco Gate. And so the treatment is meant to stimulate the body's own immune system to attack the cancer cells and eliminate cancer and has eliminated cancerous tumors in 87 out of 90 mice with various cancers, including lymphoma, breast cancer, and colon cancer. It even was able to tackle cancers that had metastasized, which are some of the hardest cancers to treat. Now, again, however, <laughs> caveat, 
The researchers note that while this is an exciting result, there are several kinds of cancers that have been cured in mice models uh, already, which have not yet translated into any kind of human treatments or human results. So researchers have already been able to cure cancer, a bunch of cancers in mice, but that hasn't led to human trials of drugs that actually can cure humans. Again, not a perfect model. And it turns out that even if the drug ends up working for lymphoma patients, separate trials would have to be conducted for any other forms of cancer. Um, that just, you know, it has to be that way so that they don't endanger people unnecessarily. And so the treatment is actually a kind of immunotherapy. It combines two chemicals which stimulate T-cells. And those are a part of the body's immune system, which basically they are in the bloodstream generally, and they're looking for foreign particles. And if they find foreign particles, then they attack them and uh, get them out of your system. And so what it does is the T-cells are generally able to suppress cancer growth most of the time, which is why we don't get cancer all the time. But when uh, a tumor is able to get established, it is able to actually suppress the T cells from doing their work. So once a tumor gets going, it then actually is able to protect itself from the T cells by suppressing them. And so by injecting the drug directly into the tumor, the drug is actually able to reactivate T cells that are already tuned to attack the tumor. So they don't have to worry about uh, adjusting the T cells in order to make them look for the tumor cells. They're already in there. They've just been suppressed. So they've already got the sort of, they've already got the markers for the cancer cell. They just haven't been able to actually go in and uh, destroy it. And so in animal studies, injecting just one tumor actually spread the cure throughout the body as T cells migrated from one area to another through the bloodstream. And so the study published in the January 31st edition of Science Translational Medicine notes that the treatment was given to mice genetically engineered to develop to develop breast cancer in all 10 of their mammary pads. When the drug was injected into the first tumor that appeared, it was able to destroy that tumor and prevent new ones from forming in most cases. Now, immunotherapy isn't new, but what is new about this is the ease at which the treatment can be administered. Previous treatments required harvesting the patient's immune cells and engineering them to fight the cancer. We're attacking specific targets without having to identify exactly what proteins the T-cells are recognizing, Dr. Ronald Levy, a professor of oncology at Stanford University School of Medicine and the senior author of the study, said in a statement. However, I must once again stress that this treatment is only going into stage one trials. Many promising drugs make it to stage two or even to stage three, but are unable to make it out of stage four trials and into the hands of everyday clinicians. But hopefully this is indeed a promising step in our fight against cancer. Okay, 
So let us move on now, finally away from medical issues, and let's talk about a really neat find in Canada. So you may have heard about this, uh, that Canadian researchers have found 13,000-year-old human footprints, and they found them recently on Canada's Calvert Island. So a team of scientists from the University of Victoria and the Hakai Institute found the fossilized impression of at least three different individuals in Paleosol dated to 13,000 years ago, and that was hiding beneath beach sand on the island, which is located off the Pacific coast of Canada. Anthropologist Dr. Duncan McLaren led a team that excavated at the Mayi Channel, uh, the Mayi Channel 1 archaeological site on what would have been beachfront sediment when the sea was 6.5 to 10 feet lower than it is today uh, due to it, due to that time period having been at the end of the last ice age. They found a total of 29 human footprints, as well as partial footprint-like depressions, which had been disturbed by overtrampling. During the last ice age, uh, which ended around 11,700 years ago, humans moved into the Americas from Asia across what was then a land bridge to North America, eventually reaching what is now the west coast of British Columbia, Canada, as well as coastal regions to the south, Dr. McLaren and colleagues said. Along the Pacific coast of Canada, much of this shoreline is today covered by dense forest and only accessible by boat, making it difficult to look for the archaeological evidence which might support his, this hypothesis. Now, they suspect that the footprints belonged to two adults and a child, and the findings support the idea that humans actually used a coastal route to move from Asia to North America during the Ice Age. So this isn't necessarily uh, any kind of new idea about the migration. It's just that instead of moving through a land, sort of a tunnel of land between two ice sheets, um, as they used to think uh, years ago uh, when I was a youngin in school, that they actually think that instead, as they moved across the land bridge, they hugged the coast um, and that there were some people who used, um, there were some seafarers and things like that. Um, and so the findings provide evidence of the seafaring people who inhabited this area during the tail end of the last major ice age, Dr. McLaren said. Um, so yeah, that is the idea is that they were actually more coastal people than people who were nomadically moving through the interior. Um, and so hopefully more excavations at the site will lead to even more evidence concerning these ancient explorers who populated a new set of continents as the ice age came to a close. So yeah, um, they're hoping to get some other, um, they're helping, hoping to get some cutting edge, uh, instruments out there, uh, to be able to sort of look at that area and see if they can discern more, um, footprints. And if they're able to discern more footprints, it could give them some more information about uh, what the people might have been doing there. And it's just really exciting because there's so little evidence that has remained from that period of time in that particular area where that land bridge was, because most of the evidence is, again, underwater now because the shore was... Uh, 
the shoreline was much further out because the uh, ocean was up to 10 feet lower than it is now in those areas. Okay. So speaking of the ocean, uh, we're going to move from the ancient past to the cutting edge of research. And so this is about a new soft-bodied robot designed by MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, or CSAIL. And it's called SOFI. And so this is a fish-like robot that is able to swim alongside real fish in the ocean in order to capture audio and video of the animals in their natural habitat without human disturbance. Now, SOFI was tested in the Rainbow Reef of Fiji and was able to swim for up to 40 minutes at, at a time at depths up to 50 feet. It was able to handle ocean currents and took high-resolution video and photos using a fish-eye lens. Now, the robot is actually able to use an undulating tail to propel itself through the water and is able to control its own buoyancy, allowing it to swim in a straight line, to turn, and to dive up or down. Now, the team used customi a customized waterproof Super Nintendo controller uh, and developed a custom acoustic communication system in order to allow them to change the speed and direction of the robot. To our knowledge, this is the first robotic fish that can swim untethered in three dimensions for extended periods of time, says CSAIL PhD candidate Robert Katz Katchman, lead author of the new journal article published today in Science Robotics. We are excited about the possibility of being able to use a system like this to get closer to marine life than humans can get on our own. Now, obviously, uh, if you've ever seen scuba diving videos or if you've ever gone scuba diving, uh, you know, even snorkeling, being in the water with animals will change their behavior. And so this has been sort of one of those com uh, continuing issues is that there are places where we just can't get close to animals uh, because they will either hide or they will act in ways that are not uh, natural because, you know, a weird human is near them and, you know, they're not used to seeing humans and so it can affect their behavior. And of course, as I am constantly saying, we desperately need to know more about the ocean and about what is in it. And so a robot like this that is uh, intuitively built to look like a fish, to uh, swim like a fish is just so exciting to me. Um, I'm so excited to see this work and to do more things. Uh, and so, yeah. Other autonomous underwater vehicles, or AUVs, those are usually tethered to boats or powered by bulky and expensive propellers. Uh, so if you look at any of the, um, I think it's the Okinos uh, um, expedition has this really cool ROV, but it's a big ROV that kind of moves around and, you know, it's at depth. So it's definitely needs to be a little stronger than this guy is probably, but 
you know, it definitely, again, can scare off different kinds of fish and other animals that are living down there. And so it would be better if we had something like this. And so, SoFi, on the other hand, uh, it is much simpler and more lightweight. It has a single camera, a motor, and is actually powered by a cell phone battery. And so in order for the robot to swim, the motor pumps water into two balloon-like chambers in the fish's tail, which act like a set of pistons in an engine. So basically, when water fills one side of the tail, it bends one way and then vice versa. And so the back half of the fish is silicone rubber and flexible plastic, with several components of the design having been 3D printed. That includes the head, which contains the electronics. And actually, in order to prevent water leakage to the electronics, the head is actually filled with a bit of baby oil. And so baby oil is a fluid that doesn't compress from pressure changes. So it won't allow, um, it doesn't compress so that water can get into the chamber. Now, the major challenge was depth, how to adjust the buoyancy for it to be able to move up and down in the water column. So the robot has two fins on the side to adjust pitch when it's um, either uh, diving or rising. And it has an adjustable weight compartment with a buoyancy control unit. And so that is able to change the density uh, by compressing or decompressing air. So it's just really, really well designed. C-Cell director Daniel Roos noted that the robot is capable of close observations and interactions with marine life and appears to not be disturbing to real fish. So that is very exciting. SoFi is actually part of a bigger project to develop soft-bodied robots. Such robots have less to worry about in terms of collision avoidance, which is a huge hurdle for hard-bodied robots. Soft-bodied robots might even be able to learn from collisions to find better paths. The next step is to improve on SoFi and to create more of them to be distributed to biologists in order to study how the robot can work in different environments with different sets of fish. We view SoFi as a first step towards developing almost an underwater observatory of sorts, says Roos. It has the potential to be a new, new type of tool for ocean exploration and to open up new avenues for uncovering the mysteries of marine life, which I am very excited about. And that is all the time we have for tonight. So please do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.